You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 95. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. We thought that it would be appropriate on the day after this historic presidential election to bring you an episode focused on science, reason, and the importance of debunking societal myths. Brian Dunning is the host of the popular podcast series Skeptoid. Brian's show has been one of the top science podcasts for over a decade, which makes him a pioneer for science content in this medium. I reached out to Brian with an interview request because I'm a big fan of his show, and um, we actually found a lot of crossover in in the themes and topics that each of us cover in our respective uh, podcast shows. It was a very refreshing conversation, and I thought it would be a nice breath of fresh air as the dust settles from this uh, outrageous, I'll call it, presidential campaign season. Let's jump in. Well, my name is Brian Dunning. I'm uh, best known as the host and producer of the Skeptoid podcast, which has been one of the uh, top science podcasts in iTunes since uh, 2007. I started it in 2006. It's been a weekly show for just over 10 years now, which sometimes blows my mind to think about that. that that's what I've been doing for uh, for so long. And and since 2010, it's been full time. So it's a show that covers four basic subject areas, urban legends, um, conspiracy theories, alternative medicine and paranormal claims. Basically, anything that we might hear about in pop culture um, that's not true, but that more importantly, there is actual good real science to be learned by more thoroughly understanding the true story. When you started this show, you've been doing this since 2006, which is a long time. But I mean, in the world of podcasting, I mean, that's an eternity. That was sort of at the dawn of the creation of the, the podcast as a medium for people to sort of consume this type of content. I mean, what inspired you to start this podcast series, Skeptoid? Well, I studied computer science in school and also directing and writing for film and television. And those are things that don't go together very well. So I, <laughs> I never really had a career that combined my interests in uh, general science, um, history of science, and and entertainment until podcasting came out. And it, it just all of a sudden provided uh, an outlet where I could create a show and uh, get it out in front of people without you know having to make my whole career being in Hollywood or something, which I think I'd kill myself if I had to do that. So it, it was really just a perfect convergence of technology and opportunity, and uh, I've just been the happiest guy in the world ever since. I want to sort of talk a little bit about what it means to be a skeptic. Is there necessarily a connection with like science and the scientific method? That's clearly sort of your approach. Well, it was probably a poor marketing choice because skepticism is, in the way that people generally use the word, it's got a fairly negative connotation. It's, oh, you're the people who think that uh, that 9-11 was an inside job, or, or you're the people who think this strange thing, or you're the people who doubt this or who doubt that. Uh, and, and, and 
well, I guess doubt is part of it, but really what, what skepticism is, is requiring some kind of a standard for evidence for the things that we accept and choose to believe. So if you come to me and say, you've got a super easy cure for cancer, skepticism requires me to, you know, put your claim on hold pending some kind of decent evidence. So when we hear these urban legends and these subjects that I cover on the show, we try to apply some skepticism. We cover what are the what are the claims, what do people say about it, and how do we then apply skepticism to uh, weigh the quality of that evidence and come up with a conclusion for what probably is actually going on. So it's really a fun process. It's the process of discovery, and skepticism really is just the application of the scientific method. So skepticism and science uh, go very much hand in hand. Where did your skepticism come from? I mean, can we trace that sort of back to its roots? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, like, like many people in my field, and, um, and by my field, I mean fellow science communicators. That's really the sort of the, the, uh, the genre that I, that I fly in. Um, most of us grew up as huge fans of science fiction, fantasy, uh, I also read all the books I could get a hold of on Bigfoot and ghosts and UFOs, and I believed every word in all of those books. And I was just tremendously fascinated by all the strange stuff. And then I remember I was, gosh, I, I was a, probably a young teenager, and I saw James Randi come on to The Tonight Show uh, you know, James, James Randi, the amazing Randi, as his professional name was, basically a, a magician and a professional debunker of charlatans, uh, people who take advantage of others by um, using false claims and making miraculous claims and claiming to talk to the dead or speak to God or heal you magically. And he was on Johnny Carson and he was uh, debunking a... Um, uh, it wasn't Yuri Geller, but it was one of those other guys. And he always had a little demonstration set up. Johnny Carson was uh, very much a skeptic himself, and he was a major donor to James Randi's educational foundation, and they were good friends. And so uh, Johnny Carson was always a great confederate in setting up these demonstrations where the charlatans would come on his show. And once you apply some controls to their, their little claimed magical ability – they would always fail, and Randy would explain how and why they failed, and he would show how he can do this trick himself. And it just really opened up my eyes, and it caused me to go back and take a second look at all these things that I had grew up believing uncritically. And uh, it just became a passion for me to find out the true cause of of these amazing stories that I'd always heard. Uh, to me... I, I find it fascinating that people can watch a show like Finding Bigfoot or the the Ghost Hunters and they can be satisfied with that because it's clearly not true and there's no evidence supporting any argument that it would be true. So how can people be satisfied with that? When you can dig deeper, you can go beyond just the sensational coverage of the story. You can find out what's actually happening and there's real sociology behind it, or there's real, real perceptual phenomena or something that makes these people think they're seeing these things or whatever it is that's actually going on. 
that's when you find the real solution to the mystery. And that's what I find so fascinating. So I'm continually surprised that more people are not interested in skeptically taking another step beyond the, the standard pop culture version of a mystery. I share those feelings with you. And, you know, it's, it's funny, your description of sort of the, the, the typical science communicator and, and you know, the, the type of stories that they uh, uh, sort of grow up absorbing, um, that, that definitely rings true for myself as well. Yeah, we're all, we're all nerds. We're all, <laughs> yeah. all yeah. nerds and geeks at heart. Yeah, and there, I mean, there is, I, I think, there's almost like this desire, like, like, like we want to believe these exceptional things. But at the same time, like, that's sort of the fun of it and sort of the mystery is like uncovering what, what that real truth is, right? Absolutely. That's, that, that's, you know, opening the lid of the treasure chest. <laughs> Finding out what's actually inside is, is that's, that's all of the excitement for me. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of people love watching, you know, like these silly, like reality TV, like Ghost Hunter or Bigfoot shows. Can we break down that phenomenon, like in and of itself? Like, are, are these people, like, do you think these people who are watching shows like that, do they, you know, do they really believe in ghosts? Do they really believe in Bigfoot? Well, first of all, I would answer that by saying I, 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 I discourage going down the route of an us versus them. Because I think that at heart, we're all interested in the same thing, which is we're all fascinated by the mystery. And some of us just have not been exposed to or practiced with the right tools to maybe follow the threads all the way to their logical conclusion. When you look at shows like, uh, well, heck, I could list just about anything that's on you know, Discovery Channel, the Pseudo History Network. Oh, <clears throat> I mean the History Channel. Um any of these shows that promote some crazy thing. Okay. The, uh, Hitler is still alive and the Nazis were driven by occult mysticism, something like that. There's no historical fact behind any of that stuff at all. So why do people watch it? It's because it's sensational and exciting. And that's the easy way for TV producers to get eyeball share is simply make up something that's sensational and exciting. And you don't even have to make it up because some author has written a book on just about anything you can think of. So it was very easy for them to select content that's sensational. End of story. It gets people to watch it. Their job is done. And that's a problem for science communicators because it continually promotes and reinforces poor thought process, simply accepting whatever you hear uh, without questioning it. Um, you watch a program that tries to convince us the Nazis were driven by occult mysticism and say, oh, wow, that sounds compelling. Psychologically, that's a sound compelling idea because we, the Nazis were, what they did was so obscene that we find it difficult to understand how people could do that. So it's psychologically satisfying to say, oh, well, they must have been driven by occult mysticism. Okay, done. Well, anyone who understands history or, or economics or politics knows, well, that sounds kind of fishy. I mean, that, that an entire country would fall down some rabbit hole of, of occultism. And it sounds fishy because there's no truth to it. It's just something that authors have ascribed to the Nazis because it was fascinating. Everyone loves a great story. And if you don't have the tools to analyze it, then you're just going to stop at appreciating the great story. And that's why these shows are popular. It's not necessarily an us versus them. It's not necessarily a case of some people 
want to believe what's wrong. Nobody wants to believe what's wrong. They just don't have the tools to go any further. There's this interesting uh, balance here, right? I mean, the role of the science communicator is to essentially be a storyteller, right? But to tell these stories in a way that is scientifically accurate. How do you decide what topics you're going to cover uh, on your show? You know, you take a topic like the example that you uh, put forth just now about the Nazis. That strikes me as like, yeah, that's a story that is probably compelling to a lot of people, but like the vast majority of people who watch some program about that are probably not going to walk away like truly believing that there was this vast conspiracy or that Hitler's still alive or something, you know, that 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 is is outrageous and 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 still falls well outside of sort of the mainstream. But then there are these widespread misconceptions where it it seems like the vast majority have a, a false belief about a particular topic. Well, I, I think I think most people who watch these shows do come away uh, believing largely in the message. You know, anything that's on the Discovery Channel, hey, that's got to be legitimate, right? Anything that's on National Geographic, that's got to be real, right? They're they're not aware that these networks are entertainment networks like any other, who basically licensing some legitimate sounding name. And, and you're you're right that that I have to do the same thing as these networks in my shows. I have to find a way to make these stories sensational and exciting. It's just that I choose not to simply stop short and promote this, you know, goofy, overused ghost explanation, whatever it is. I choose to dig deeper, find out what actually happened and find out if there is a good story, because there isn't always. A lot of these urban legends, there's nothing behind them, and it leaves me very little to talk about. It's just someone made something up and put it on the Internet. That's not very interesting. You know, it can be a little bit interesting to talk about the phenomena of how stories like that can spread, but you can only go so far with that. But there are a lot of urban legends and mysteries in the world, and it's I can always find something that uh, that's that's got a great story behind it. I, if you, I can give you a couple of examples from my, my favorite episodes of, of my own show. Everyone's familiar with the, the Patterson Bigfoot film, right? It's the famous film we've all seen a thousand times, the Bigfoot striding across the meadow, and he pauses and looks back at the camera, and it's very iconic. And typically, the skeptical treatment is to say, well, it's not real. It wasn't a real Bigfoot. We've got the receipts from the company that rented the camera. We've got the company that hired these guys and gave them the budget to make the film. And here's the company they bought the suit from. And we tracked down the receipts. And you know, we can put together all of that information. And we do know for a fact how the film was made. That's an okay story. Um, it's probably not as good as there's a giant, terrifying wild man running around the Pacific Northwest. That's a better story. So my job was to find work, how, come up with a story that's at least interesting that people haven't heard before that tells the factual version of this without having to resort to made-up sensationalism. And um, it turns out that uh, uh, Roger Patterson was dying of cancer when he uh, made this film uh, he had to support his wife, who he loved very much. They didn't have much money because he'd never worked steadily. And he was really looking at this as a last-ditch, get-rich-quick scheme. And just the guy's personality was fascinating. He was 
He cheated everyone in every business deal. He was lazy. He was a jerk. Nobody who knew him had anything nice to say about the guy, but he was still a human being and he was still trying to do the right thing for his wife at this late stage of his life. And there was a very poignant story to be told in this because on this last ditch effort, the, the cards fell in the right place and it paid off and his wife survived very well after he, he died off the royalties from this film. And I found that to be a great story. And that's, that's one of my favorite episodes. And it's also a great example of how you can tell a good story factually that's probably more interesting than the pop culture version. I'd never heard anything about that. Uh, I mean, despite the fact that there's, you know, probably countless television programs made about that very footage without even mentioning any of that fascinating backstory. So. No, and, and that's because they're simply lazy and they're not interested in going there. They're not interested in debunking or saying, well, there isn't really a giant hairy monster. That's not the great version of the story. I want to sort of get a sense of the scope of the different types of issues that, that you address in your show. I mean, you've been producing this show for 10 years now. There's lots and lots of episodes. Maybe you can point out a few examples uh, that sort of show the diversity of different types of topics that you cover? Yeah, um, I, on Skeptoid, I do a lot of conspiracy theories, which is not necessarily my favorite, but it's one of the one that's one of the subject areas that gets the best response and gets the most attention. And whenever you know, I do I do little interviews for TV shows. I speak at conferences. I do radio shows. I do this kind of stuff all the time. And it's almost always wanting to talk about conspiracy theories. I kind of roll my eyes and go, OK, here we go again. <laughs> so, you know, OK, what what is there left to say about 9-11 or uh, that uh, chemtrails or spraying uh, spraying us all with dangerous chemicals to dumb down the population so that we can be made docile enough to go into Obama's death camps. Um, it's just, it's just goofy, goofy stuff. And, um, just recently I finally got around after 10 years, I finally got around to doing uh, a three part ex- episode. The only time I've done a three part episode on uh, the moon landing hoax, the people who believe we never went to the moon. And, uh, I, I took the three parts and I made the first part was kind of the whole history of the conspiracy theory, how it came about. And the fascinating part of that, that I hadn't heard before. And I hadn't really, I didn't know about till I did the research was that this came out of basically the flat earth society, the original flat earth society from the mid 20th century, um, that was largely an evangelical religious organization that was dedicated to trying to prove the literal truth of the Bible. And so they were openly critical of all the space program, the, uh, the Mercury program that, that came before the Gemini program, when they started sending back photos from orbit where you could see that the earth was a sphere, they were, they were claiming that those were false. And that's the genesis of the Apollo hoax theory it goes all the way back to these people. And that was a fascinating part that I hadn't learned before. The next two parts were more based on hard science. What is the, what is the solid, unfakeable evidence that proves that we actually had humans on the moon? And we've got plenty of that. And it was fascinating to learn about that. But it's, it's, again, that's kind of sociological aspect of it that 
that uh, that makes it a, a human story and and something that we can all connect with at an emotional level. I've done stories on alternative medicine schemes. Uh, pop culture is so thick with made up alternative medicine schemes. It's ridiculous. Every day, it seems somewhere is someone is spinning a big wheel going, invent your new random alternative medicine scheme, some new agey thing. And um, I'd had a lot of requests to do something on Edgar Casey. Edgar Casey was a early 20th century celebrity psychic. His thing was he would uh, pretend to fall asleep and go into a trance. And uh, uh, when he woke up, um, he, he would uh, mutter to uh, to an assistant who had already done the research on this person, and the assistant would then tell us everything we needed to know about this person. And audiences were foolish enough to believe that Edgar Casey came up with this during his trance. It was a, a very a very basic and poorly done psychic routine that I don't think would fool many people today. But in the early 20th century, it was pretty compelling. Well, this guy also made up goofy medical devices, spirit-based, ghost-based, energy-based, vitalism-based little devices and stuff that he would sell. He actually did quite well financially selling all this goofy stuff. And sadly, many of those products are still available today from um, from sellers. And so I did an episode on um, the relative of one listener who wrote me saying that uh, this person in their family had uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, the same thing that Stephen Hawking um, has amazingly survived as long as he has with. Uh, but this guy had a much worse prognosis. He probably had less than a year to live, and he was unfortunately wasting his money on some of these Edgar Casey devices and causing the family quite a bit of distress as a result of that. And um, so I devoted an episode to saying how you should probably approach a very sensitive and very unfortunate situation like this. And um, I got uh, tremendous thanks. It was a very profound moment, actually, from the family after that episode came out. And after the gentleman finally did pass away, I heard from them again with uh, with great thanks for how I'd helped. That's you know, it's that kind of moment that really makes the whole show worthwhile. These misconceptions that people have, you know, a, a, a lack of really looking closely at the evidence behind a claim can be really harmful and detrimental to, you know, to individual people, to society as a whole, uh, to the environment, uh, uh, to species conservation efforts. I mean, you could go on. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, a friend of mine, Tim Farley, said it best. He defines... Um, the type of skepticism that we do, he defines it as the intersection of science education and consumer protection. The better that consumers have an understanding of basic science literacy, the better they are able to protect themselves from consumer frauds and things like this that, that rip people off uh, because they're, they're just simply fraudulent products, fraudulent claims, and people don't have the tools to know what's real from what's not. Yeah. So I think that's an important definition of it. I did one not too long ago on cryotherapy, this sort of this new fad that someone comes out with saying going into this uh, incredibly cold room for, uh, you know, one or two minutes uh, confers all kinds of medical benefits, which is provably untrue and completely implausible if you understand the basics of of how the body deals with temperature. Uh, 
so that's the kind of story where there's not necessarily a great human interest narrative behind it, but there is always some interesting science. So uh, learning some cool science that's in the context of something fun that's part of your daily life is another way to make a good episode. My entry point into into this discussion is, you know, I'm a wildlife and, and conservation focused yeah. filmmaker, mm-hmm. right? I mean, those are the issues that that I work to address and to find solutions to on, on a daily basis. The subject of the first film I produced about the story of the recovery of the California condor. Um, and, you know, this is a story that, again, you know, like a lot of these topics you're talking about, I mean, it's very much in the public awareness, right? I mean, a, a lot of people are aware that the California condor is this giant bird that, you know, is really close to extinction and, you know, got down to this unbelievably low population number, 22 individuals and, and recovered. You know, like a lot of people are aware of that to a certain extent, maybe not all of those details. What the vast majority of people don't realize is that is like what what caused that, right? And the fact that at the time when there were only 22 individuals, nobody knew what was causing the decline of the species and that we now know that. Right. We now know that it was this lead poisoning, essentially, from spent ammunition. However, despite that and despite all the scientific evidence that has come out, you have this massive industry, this multi-billion dollar industry that is the lead ammunition industry actively working to discredit that science. You know, this is sort of standard fare as far as environmental and conservation issues are concerned. I mean, the most egregious example of, of this is climate change. Right. Um, these, camp- these campaigns to, to sort of actively undermine uh, legitimate scientific research. How would you approach an issue like that? You know, I mean, like, what would be your process as far as, like, jumping into the research and, like, trying to figure out what angle you wanted to do? Yeah, well, and, and that's the thing is, you know, I, my show has its, its niche, and not every subject is going to fit into that niche. And if it doesn't fit well then I'm just going to leave it to other shows like yours to cover that instead. So what I would look for in that, I would focus on first. The first things I would research to see if there's a good angle for me is I would look on the, the history of the hypotheses for what was causing the decline and how they may have changed over the years, how the, I, I look very closely at that, the lead poisoning from, from ammunition uh, see what the science is behind that. And if it turns out that the popular version that most people believe about that explanation is not true, then there's a good chance it'd be a story I, I would cover. If, if not, if it looks like that is indeed pretty solid and there's really aren't any popular misconceptions about it, it's probably a story I would move on from and, and not cover. One thing that's similar that I covered in sometimes I do student questions episodes where students can send in questions. They just record them on their phone memo device and email them into me. And um, I'll do four or five of them in an episode. And one of them was asking about, hey, the depleted uranium uh, penetrators that are all over um, the Middle East after all the Gulf Wars, you know, how, how dangerous are those really? And that turned out to be a perfect uh, subject for my show because People believe, oh, those are radioactive, and the the military still has teams of people working full-time and probably will continue to have for decades, costing millions of dollars, trying to track down and physically locate every single uh, depleted uranium penetrator that they can find in the desert sands and collect it for to put it away safely so it can't sicken people with radioactivity. 
And the fact is that the science behind that is 100% wrong because they pose no realistic threat to anyone at all. Um, the only time a depleted uranium shell is dangerous is when it actually hits something and bits of it atomize into the air. And if you're in the immediate vicinity and you inhale some of that, you will get a tiny bit of heavy metal poisoning. You have to have that happen a lot of times before you're going to get enough to make any significant difference to your health. So it's probably never happened to anyone. But uh, the reason we call them depleted uranium is because they're no longer significantly radioactive. Uh, once it's sitting in the dirt, it's completely inert and doesn't hurt anyone. You could pick one up and put it on it as a paperweight on your desk, and it wouldn't be in the slightest bit harmful. In fact, I've been trying to get a hold of one for a long time, <laughs> but, but I can't. So that's that's an example where something that sounds sounds reasonable and most people would accept it uncritically um, when the science behind it is completely opposite to what people think. That's when it makes a good show. Over the last decade or so, when you've been producing your show, have you noticed any any trends or any sort of shifts in the way that, like, people seem to be perceiving science or perceiving this concept of, of skepticism? No. And, and that's a question that people ask me a lot. And people say, so do you think we're winning this fight? You know, are people becoming more rational or less rational? I, I say, no, they're not in the slightest. Um, and I don't think that's going to change in the foreseeable future. The thought processes that lead people into uncritical thought and uncritical beliefs are, are hardwired into all of us. They are evolved traits. Uh, it's something that we all have at a deep innate level. And uh, it's human nature to think anecdotally, to put more emphasis on anecdotes than on data. That's, that's something that's part of being a human being. So that's not going to change. And it's probably the strongest driver of uh, why people believe weird things and why it's so easy to get people to watch a show that uh, titillates with fascinating anecdotes. Everyone has their own personal life experiences with which they can temper that native tendency. And so that's why we're all somewhere along the spectrum of believing absolutely everything we hear and believing absolutely nothing we hear. So since these are basic human traits I don't foresee going out of business anytime soon. There's always going to be a role for, for science communicators. And, and there's always going to be a role for the people who are trying to sell misinformation or just trying to sell sensationalism. And that's where the, unfortunately, that's where the biggest economic engine is going to be. So that's where the money comes from. Those are the programs that are always going to have a much bigger budget than mine. So it's always going to be an uphill battle, I think. Definitely relate on a certain level, right? I mean, I think the focus of my show and the work I do in filmmaking and talking about environmental issues and conservation, I mean, there's, there's really a lot of crossover between both of what we're doing. I mean, even though they're sort of, they, they are seemingly like very different niches within the scope of, of science communication. Um, well, certainly the, um, in, in your field, the importance of good data is extremely critical because you can't come up with a good solution to a problem if it's based on bad data. If you take issues like, uh, I don't know if you've covered, uh, you know, elephant poaching. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what's the profile of the typical elephant poacher? Uh, is it, uh, you know, some soldier riding around the back of a truck with a machine gun? Or is it a very poor villager that this is the only way he's going to feed his family this year? Right. And 
what do we how do we solve that problem because it's much more than just someone poaching ivory and selling it the problem goes much deeper through society and is going to take a far more complicated solution before we're going to make it be able to make any impact on that you've got to protect the lives of people and of elephants so you have to have a great understanding of very good data very good science behind any environmental policy absolutely and and, and you have to have empathy as well, right? And, and I mean, that example is, is, I think, a perfect example of the things that I struggle with on, on a daily basis and, and, you know, trying to wrap my head around a solution, solutions-based approach to issues like this, right? Which is by demonizing uh, those individuals who are going out and, and, and hunting elephants for their ivory, you know, is that overall producing a benefit for the issue? Like, I don't, you know, I don't think so. Um, you know, that's not the real problem. The real problem are, you know, these uh, these organized crime syndicates that are really driving this whole industry. And then there's the connections with government and government corruption and global trade. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a much bigger issue than like one individual uh, making a morally wrong decision, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, an, an issue like that brings in lots and lots of complexities and, and it's about the scientific evidence, but... There's just a lot of unknowns as well. Um, and, and, you, and, and you know how, how passionate uh, the, many people in the general public can become about these issues. You take the whole Cecil the Lion thing, and boy, everyone thought they knew, they, they thought they knew the solution to that, and it was really simple. Is, you know, this, this dentist should be crucified and executed. Done. Solved. We've, uh, we've avenged Cecil. And... As you know, that's another issue that's way more complicated than just this one case that so enraged the population. So in some cases, you have to, you have to work – to, to come up with a science-driven policy, you have to work against an emotion-driven policy of the people who should be your biggest supporters. And that's an issue that I face on my show all the time too. Uh, many of my listeners are in the science community or the academic community. They tend to be politically liberal. And sometimes there are things that I uncover that are going to go against their ideology. And I kind of have to force my own colleagues to question some of their fundamental beliefs. And that can be interesting. And it's, it's, it's a minefield. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, it's it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have one one fundamental rule that I impose on myself that I follow is that I'm not out to offend anyone. I'm not out to tell anyone that their ghost isn't real or that their religion isn't real. I'm not out to attack anyone's beliefs at all because that's an inherently negative process. If I have to tell them your ghost isn't real it's because I have something better to tell them that replaces the ghost that I think and hope is going to engage them more. So I always have to find the positive outcome and I'm not going to do any show that has to be told from a particular perspective or that requires that uh, I change anyone's beliefs. Um, I'm merely trying to encourage an appreciation for scientific thought because that's something that in the long run will benefit everyone, no matter their beliefs. 
Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun, uh, Brian. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's 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 really an honor to to have you on the show. I've been listening to your show, uh, to your podcast series for a long time. So, uh, oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. So, thank you for taking the time. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Happy to do it. Tune everyone in to Skeptoid.com. <laughs> All right. That was our conversation with Brian Dunning, host of the podcast series Skeptoid. I love how Brian's skepticism and focus on the scientific method doesn't prevent him from understanding where these false beliefs really come from. The, the example that he presented to us in there about uh, the episode that he did about ALS, I think, is a perfect example of this. And I think it is this ability to recognize both the scientific reality while maintaining human compassion that sets Brian apart from others in this field. If you'd like to learn more about Brian's work as a science communicator and his podcast series, Skeptoid, you can visit the show notes page for this episode where we'll post links with more information. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC95. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash EOC95. And if you'd like to support this show and help new people discover the conversations that we have here on the EOC podcast, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, and you can leave us an honest rating and review. You can also join the discussion on our new Eyes on Conservation Facebook group. Search Eyes on Conservation in iTunes to find us there, or search EOC Podcast in Facebook and ask to join the group. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. <laughs> <laughs>